0: Hello, and a warm welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. It's great to be back with you after these long summer months, and as we turn into the autumn and winter seasons, I want to explore a theme that I've become increasingly interested in, that of integration. Whether we conceive of it as incorporating previously disconnected entities into one larger entity, or we take a more Jungian perspective and see it as the process through which both the individual and collective unconscious are integrated into the personality. The idea that we might be able to accept, enter into relationship with, and integrate different aspects of ourselves and the wider systems to which we belong is something I think we sorely need in such fractious times. With that in mind, I'll be speaking with some of the most thoughtful and inspiring people working towards systemic integrative change today. From economists, filmmakers and content curators, to therapists working in psychedelic integration and pioneers engaged in rewilding and restoration efforts, this season is one that I am really excited to share with you. I'll also be updating the resources page on my website with books and content that I've found invaluable in case you want to dive deeper into any of these subjects and you'd like some inspiration on where to start. You can find this at natalinahy.com forward slash resources. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I hope this season brings you a deeper sense of self-knowledge, connection and possibility. And I would love to hear if and how it inspires you envision and create the flourishing future you want to inhabit. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. And now, on with the show. For the first episode of the series, I have the pleasure of speaking with Erin Sahan the business and enterprise lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. A term coined by the pioneering economist Kate Roworth, the aim of donut economics is to create 21st century economies that are regenerative and distributive by design so that they can meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet, a theme which we'll be exploring in our conversation today. Erinch is a board member of the Social Enterprise World Forum He was recently the chief executive of the World Fair Trade Organization, and he previously spent seven years at Oxfam leading campaign initiatives, where he also founded Oxfam's Future of Business initiative. With degrees in finance and law and an honorary doctorate from Oxford Brookes University, Erin teaches sustainable value chains at Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and he has also worked for Australia's aid programme. In the course of his career, he's even established a furniture business, and in his earlier years, he worked at Procter & Gamble as a market strategy manager, a story I'll be asking him about shortly. So Erinch, it's a great pleasure to be in conversation with you this morning, kicking off the new season of the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm very well. I'm excited to have this conversation to get into the, the DNA of business and the big transformations we need to drive.
0: Exciting. So, so let's start somewhere a little bit deeper before, or maybe tangentially, before we get into the nuts and bolts of business transformation and purposeful leadership, which I know are some kind of the core things that you dig into in your work. I've been reading a lot recently about holarchies and fractal organisations of systems. And I used to, pre the last season, ask people on the podcast what they think is going on with the global human psyche. And I was kind of diverted away from that question when I had enough people, mostly psychologists, saying, well, you know, you can't expand context to include all humans because human experience is very varied, which is true. But considering humanity from the perspective of maybe a superorganism um, and Jungian ideas of what lies beneath and archetypes that we can draw on for our collective Future, I want to revisit that question and maybe ask you, using that frame, what would you suspect is going on in the global human psyche right now?
1: Oh well, Natalie, what a question to begin with
0: <laughs> I must <laughs> say
1: um it, it's it's it does I do have an answer for that, and as you were thinking i was I was visualizing the way we are all connected, the different sides of us that are that are present that we are both cooperative and competitive, that we have an enormous capacity to be generous but also harmful to each other and to our living planet. And I think what's happened for the last hundred years ish, and, and increasing the last 50 years, is I think we've really fostered the competitive, greedy, you know, ungenerous side of ourselves. And we've created systems that have created feedback loops. That have fostered that, that have supported that, that have rewarded that, that have catalyzed individuals and supported individuals into leadership positions that exhibit that side of humanity. And, and I think there's an awakening beginning to happen, that we've gone too far, that, that we we aren't just that, we aren't just utility-maximizing selfish organisms, that we are actually a lot more and we've got an amazing capacity to cooperate, to be generous, to to exhibit mutualism the same way nature does, the same way that we, we see organisms all around us coexist in in that sort of relationship of support and generosity um, alongside competition. Um, and, and I think that's what's happening. We're beginning, I think, to wake up to the fact that there's a whole side of us that we've suppressed as human beings and and that we can actually design our systems around ourselves in much more effective and holistic ways.
0: Mm. It's so fascinating hearing you talk about the tensions between these different aspects of human character um, and potential. And one of the things, well, the main theme I've been thinking on for the, the curation of this particular season is that of integration and thinking again about this kind of, expression at a micro and macro level of what that looks like, ways in which we both come to terms with and find a better relationship to the parts of ourselves that are perhaps more problematic, that are perhaps more selfish, or the shadow aspects that we haven't given heed to. So there's kind of this this question of what integration can look like on a a personal level, and then when we scale that up to larger, more systemic levels. And one thing that really struck me from your biography, and maybe I'm projecting massively here, so do... (laughs) Correct me if I've mis, misunderstood, but um, one of the things that struck me about your bio is that you were actually working at Procter & Gamble as a market strategy manager, and I'm guessing that the role that you inhabited there is possibly quite different to the roles that you inhabit now. So I'm curious to kind of know a little bit more about the journey from there to here and what seeds were there at that time that have since germinated and maybe shaped your, your path going forward.
1: Yeah, and it was over 15 years ago now that that I began that journey in the corporate world. I mean, I I think it was a moment where I realized I wanted to be in business. I was interested in business. I I wanted to get inside the bloodstream of business and and shape it. And Procter & Gamble is one of the largest, most important consumer goods companies in the world. So it was an amazing opportunity to get into one of these corporates that employs hundreds of thousands of people and affects the lives of millions around the world through its products and production. But what I I realized actually was that I couldn't find, A, I couldn't find a purpose in there. I couldn't Mm. find the purpose of selling more, to making more money, to, to increasing sales and beating your competition. And I remember you know, it's looking at colleagues that got a, a real rush out of that. Got got got, out, got a rush out of of winning, winning in the market, and that competitive instinct. I mean, that exists in me. That exists in my you know obsession with basketball. That exists in my <laughs> you know various aspects of of my work as well. But it was nowhere near enough to justify dedicating a life to to that purpose. Um, and and also became quite clear to me that. I was sitting inside an organization that was very good at what it does, very good at protecting what it does. And, you know, being some kind of a Trojan horse where I I was going to reshape what it is and why it exists would be naive, um, no matter how long I spent there. And I would, you know, I wouldn't be effective at my job because those jobs measure you on how good you are at winning at how how well you are at upselling the consumer which is find, get, finding a way to get get them to buy more to yeah. whether it's needed or not to to increasing market share and so there was something that awakened in me that felt like yeah this is not not this is not the place for me this world is not it's not that particular company to, to single them out by any stretch but that world that purpose that pursuit of that objective and goal was not the right fit for who I am what I wanted to do. So I found it very, I remember actually driving home in my company car uh, (laughs) after a a day of um, pretty good, you know, corporate results and pretty good sales results in the areas I was responsible for um, and just yelling out of frustration of going, this can't be it, you know, I'm Mm. in my late 20s and this is, this is, I can look at the people above me, I can look at the people further down their career path and I don't think I want their lives. And, um, and just the frustration of feeling trapped, I think, in a life um, that would point you towards a purpose that just did not fit with what, what felt right.
0: So then how do you make that change? Because obviously one of the things that, especially with the work that you're doing um, and with your work with Deal you're looking at different ways in which to approach how we make a living and how we do business so thinking about the financial side of things and also kind of the the personal risk taking that i imagine is required to leap from you know establishing a specific career path and jumping into something else which might or might not be unknown how do you how do you make that jump when you think okay I'm I'm accustomed to a certain amount of money hitting my bank account. I might have certain dependents or whatever. Like, how do you how do you do that? What happened?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a um, it's a million dollar question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for some people, it really is a million dollar question. It wasn't for me. I was junior. You know, I, I wasn't very junior, but I I wasn't you know on a. In a lifestyle that had the golden handcuffs, as they would say, where you can't quite leave because you'll become accustomed to it. And I remember actually, as I was leaving, some very senior people who had really um, championed me and supported me and felt like I had this great future in this company um, approached me as I was leaving and saying, "Look, I'm, I'm proud of you for what you're doing because I actually I can't do this now. You know, the lifestyle I ha- have, the expectations of my family." the expenses and the bills that come in, I can't imagine how I, I divert away to a different future. Um, and, and that was really interesting, actually, some people that you, you would think had chosen the path that worked for them. I mean, the, the answer to your question is there isn't a path. There are just steps. And then you see things that open up for you in different places. Um, and there's a level of luck and there's a level of trust and a level, a significant level of risk. Um, but for me, it started because I used cobbled together two years of annual leave and went to Ghana to work in a refugee camp with Liberian refugees for a couple of months, um, volunteering there, helping with a microfinance program, doing some teaching in the school with ref- and just it was my first foray into something different, non corporate, and that was very enlightening because I thought I. Was exposed to a whole different industry mm. of development mm. of of tackling poverty, and that led me to completing a master's that then qualified me to go into the Australian government's foreign aid program, which is the agency doesn't exist anymore. It's a part of foreign affairs, but it was called Ausaid the Australian Agency for International Development, which then led me to work for Oxfam, which led me to move to the World Fair Trade Organisation and, and to where I am now and various other small paths along that long sort of journey. So um, none of those steps were predictable. Um, mm. All of them had an element of luck that opened up, but I think um, part of it is just to take a step in a particular direction and just keep remaining open to the mm. different doors that, that you pass.
0: That's actually quite reassuring because I think often, you know, looking back, we can think um, that certain big things have to fall into place in order for lives to change. And actually, often it's the decision and then a set of investigatory paces that can maybe alter the course of a life. So let's talk about what you're doing now. And I'd like to start with your work at Donut Economics Action Lab or DEAL. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the model, can you explain what Donut Economics is? and maybe why it's so radical compared to our current capitalist systems.
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, so donut economics basically is a bit of a compass for human prosperity for the 21st century. And it's got two goals. It's got the goal of meeting the needs of all people, but doing it within the means of the living planet. Now, that sounds like, you know, high and mighty language, but if you... if I invited everyone listening to just close their eyes for a second and imagine two concentric circles. One concentric circle, the outer one, the bigger one, is the planet's boundary. These are n- nine planetary boundaries defined by Earth system scientists. A lot of great work by an organization called the Re- um, Stockholm Resilience Centre and Professor Rockstrom and others there, that came up with these boundaries and said, look, this is this non-negotiable. This is the boundaries of our living planet on which we depend. And you know everything from biodiversity to, to carbon and climate to um, ocean acidification to the way we treat our soils and our land, air pollution, chemical pollution, all of these, they add up to nine different boundaries. But if you look at those nine boundaries and my my colleague and author of the book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, Kate Raworth, observed about 10 years ago now, that actually, if all we do is try to live within the boundaries of our planet, we might not meet the needs of all the people on our living planet. And we actually have another boundary that we haven't identified, which is the social foundation. We can't shrink our economy below this inner concentric circle of the social foundation. So it's that space between the outer concentric circle, the, the planetary boundary, and the inner concentric circle, the, the social foundation. That is a safe and just space for humanity. That is the goal of... That should be the goal of the way we design our economies and our societies, that we must meet the basic needs of everybody, food, water, you know, healthcare, equality, uh, opportunity, livelihoods, all the things we need, that the economy needs to provide... But we can't do that by overshooting the planet's boundaries. And the sad fact is that we haven't designed economies for this at all. We've actually designed economies to grow endlessly, which puts it at odds too often with both of those boundaries, but particularly the planetary boundary. And as a result, we need to transform. Currently, we are in both overshoot of Earth's planetary boundaries, and we are in shortfall on Life's Essentials. If you were looking at this as as an accountant within a business and saying you're overspending to under-deliver, you'd say something is wrong. We need to change the way we're managed. We need need a complete overhaul of this system. At a planetary level, at a societal level, that is what's happening. We are overusing planetary boundaries and we are under-delivering. Hundreds of millions of people go to bed hungry every night while we uh, destroying Earth for forests and air and natural resources and, and causing devastating climate change. And donut economics basically says let's take that observation, let's take that dynamic, and let's reinvent economics based on this goal that is more or less an irrefutable and non-negotiable set of boundaries that we, as humans, on this spinning wet rock face.
0: (laughs) I like the idea of the spinning wet rock. So given that this is such a clear model supported by science and it provides a framework and metrics against which to measure how well we're doing, what are the greatest challenges do you think that we're facing in moving in this direction?
1: I mean, we face, we face a lot. I mean, a lot of it is is path dependency, I think. Mm. Um, a lot of it is the way we've designed systems and the assumptions we've made. I mean, if we look at humanity from a multi-thousand-year perspective, going way back into human history, the way we're consuming, like mad people, the last 50 to 70 years is clearly a blip. Like we we've built economies that will go into recession, and I say that with quotation marks, but alarm bells go off if we reduce our consumption, You know, if we reduce our footprint as an economy. And that, that's the biggest barrier is that we've created human systems that say, ah, economically we're in crisis unless we continue down this path. But that path leads us to ecological collapse and to spiralling inequality. So, th- th- there's a we're almost blocking ourselves, we're blocking our own progress by thinking about the fact that we must retain, sustain, and work within this particular economic mindset and this particular economic system that was not designed for the 21st century. It was designed almost with the perspective of the 20th century scarcity of financial capital in mind. It's like, how do we deploy financial capital? That's the thing that we optimize for. That's the thing that we please. That's the thing that we grow to the extent possible and we distribute power based on how much of financial capital any individual company organization has. Like that's the That's what we've optimized for. And if that were fine and sufficient, we'd be fine to keep going. But clearly mm. that's no longer the challenge of the 21st century. You know, we've got other challenges, other crises, and our economic model doesn't know how to deal with them.
0: So given that the scale is absolutely vast in terms of this problem, and there are various people who have offered interesting potential solutions, whether it's, you know, green growth or degrowth or transition town movements, you can look at any number of these Possible pass forward. And my sense is it's probably going to be a bit of a mishmash, hodgepodge kind of assortment of approaches that end up coming into play. What are the areas that you think have the greatest promise right now for affecting some of this change? Are you seeing any green shoots amidst the kind of, you know, discomfort and reluctance to unhook from this old system?
1: Oh, yes, I am. We are seeing, <laughs> I, I am seeing a lot of hope. I am seeing a lot of energy. I'm seeing a lot of dynamism and innovation and authenticity and just a huge amount of effort um, at so many levels particularly the, the bit that gets my attention is some of the work happening that that's very place based that's happening mm-hmm. at neighborhood levels like civic square in birmingham doing amazing work or at city level like in amsterdam there's the amsterdam donut coalition that's doing amazing work but around the world i mean from ba- Barbados to Bhutan, from you know Melbourne mm. to across Latin America and Southern Africa, and you know across Asia and Europe, we're beginning to see a huge number of new economy movements that that are arising that are challenging the orthodoxy of this particular path that you know people tell us we're locked into, and clearly we're not. Mm. So people are reinventing how policy should work. They're reinventing how neighborhoods should work. The part of the world and the part of, I guess, society I'm most focused on, Natalie, is the business world. And in the business world, I'm starting to see everything from community-owned organizations and enterprises to different sort of platform cooperatives to social enterprises that are discovering new solution sets to private businesses that are converting into much more regenerative structures to you know, community-owned renewable energy. There's an organisation called ResCoop that's across Europe, and it connects, I think, 1.7 thousand, so 1,700 different renewable energy mm. cooperatives spread across Europe. And that's a growing movement of citizens that are saying, "We can solve this. We can have a different model of ownership and governance, and and actually solve the problem. We need. We need affordable and renewable energy." Fine, let's make the organizations that deliver this and let's design the ownership of it. Let's design the profit reinvestment of it. Let's design the the way margins work and management and and boards are structured around that goal rather than how do we make financial capital grow as fast as it can. Um, And and of course, there's there's a whole host of high-profile examples like Patagonia Mm. and Faith in Nature that put earth on its board just a couple of weeks ago. to an organisation called Willycroft in, in, in uh, the Netherlands that decided to structure a CEO position around Earth, wow. around sort of Earth actually representing um, the, 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 the need or an individual representing the need to pursue regenerative policies and regenerative business action into the role of CEO. I mean, everywhere I look, I'm beginning to see this innovation from steward ownership to different forms of, you know, um, community led models of business that are giving me hope.
0: Mm. And actually, that's one of the things, I guess, you know, with your work at Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, thinking about how businesses can pioneer the change that so many other organisations seem resolutely reluctant to kind of let go of. So I watched a a talk that you gave. It's fascinating. So a couple of examples you gave of Danone and Unilever with the CEOs who were coming in and wanting to drive purposeful reorientation of the companies. And they had to scale back on their, I guess, on their visions because there was such a huge amount of friction. So are there sort of specific tipping points or critical masses? Like, what is it in the companies that are managing to overcome that hurdle and make that transition that we can learn from and apply to other companies? Obviously, it's not always going to be possible and there's not a silver bullet, but there, is there kind of like a set of circumstances or characteristics that mean that some companies succeed in making that transition where others fail?
1: I, I think so. I'm uh, So I, I would distinguish between businesses that are startups and early stage businesses that can be almost born to do the donut, that you can sort of be, <laughs> be embedded from birth with a particular structure that enables you to pursue things that maybe regular businesses don't or can't. And then others that convert and transition into a deep design of, of being able to pursue regenerative and distributive goals. Um, but what I see across, across all of these is looking into its deep design features. So we've got this model that we've taken huge inspiration from uh, and and built on the work of Marjorie Kelly, uh, who, who wrote a book called Owning Our Future, that now also, I think, 10 years ago, um, who talks about the enterprise design as being about its purpose, its networks, its governance, its ownership, and its finance. And with each level, I think it's getting deeper and deeper into the core of the business. You can have a nice purpose written down, but then you need to put that into the core products and the operations of the business. So you need networks. so how do you behave with your commercial partners, with your suppliers, but also your peers, and what kind of community of businesses do you belong to? What kind of lobbying and advocacy and commercial networks? Um, and then you go into governance. so how does power get exercised, and for what purpose does it get exercised? who who's on the board, who's represented? Mm. You know whose voices are in the room and Critically, you get into ownership of who owns the business. Why does it own the business? How is that ownership structured and distributed? And lastly, it's relationship with finance. How is the business financed and what does the business demand in order to to create returns for finance? Is it able to flex its margins, have flexible margins in in order to pursue regenerative or distributive goals? Is it able to reinvest its profits? back into itself to pursue those sorts of goals and objectives. So through that, you sort of end up with a nice picture of a business's deep design. And and as uh, the the writer and thinker George Box once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And we think this is a useful way to to map out the design, the structure of the business. And, And what you see is Examples like the ones you alluded to, Paul Polman at Unilever for so long really pushed the envelope on what's possible for a publicly listed company in the consumer goods industry to do. And Emmanuel Faber at Danone again did the same thing and both came up against a design problem. The way the ownership especially and the governance and the, and the finance of those businesses were designed put a limit on what's possible and held back and reined back enlightened leadership because that, that's a structure that they walked into and they did what they could. They tried to change some of those structures. Um, mm. Paul Polman tried to increase and has increased before before he left and, and after he left as well, uh, the role, the amount of employee ownership that is a part of the shareholder mix and how that can enable bolder, more ambitious, more long-term thinking in the business. It clearly didn't go far enough because we're not seeing – Um, his legacy get built on in the way you would have hoped. Um, You do see financial markets punish companies that maybe leave money on the table in order to pursue sustainability objectives. Um, And Danone and Unilever are just two high-profile examples because they own brands that we've all known of and, and consume and see daily in our lives. But there are so many examples day to day. I mean, I meet so many entrepreneurs where you go into their business, and you see ah, fantastic idea to create a regenerative product that's going to be create, minimize or eliminate waste. It's going to become, you know, much better access point for consumers, much more affordable products. It's going to have this great social and ecological impact. Okay, it makes money, doesn't quite make enough money, doesn't quite get to the net margin requirements. Oh, can't quite justify the internal investment because the return on that investment isn't quite high enough. All of these ways we design business that put a straitjacket on what business can do. And then we, we work with those straitjackets as if they're forces of nature that we can't question. So what I'm, what excites me is to see people innovate a different design, to make different actions possible. And we're beginning, I think, we're at the beginning of a journey of a bit of a revolution in business design.
0: And it's interesting because I think part of what you're describing you know, the, the reluctance to leave money on the table is also our reluctance to shift what we value. And I think that also becomes then a cultural problem and a personal problem, which is how do we conceive of enoughness? Do we have a sense of what is enough? And sort of to unpack that a bit more, it's also a question of how do we create a sense of security and well-being and eudaimonia, the sense of fulfillment of a flourishing life? And what are the reasons why? I mean, obviously, (laughs) I come at this from a bit more of a kind of human behavior stance. But, you know, what are the reasons why we've become so susceptible to, I guess, mechanisms of selling that prey on certain vulnerabilities, on certain levels of isolation, of dysphoric states in order to kind of increase profit? Like, what do you feel is the role of shifting culture and mindset in order to, reorient ourselves around what's actually meaningful and valuable to live a flourishing life?
1: I mean, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. This is the central question of what is sufficient. Um, and I'm beginning to see this question now really pop up in business because for a long time, for the last 15 years or so that I've engaged in sustainable business initiatives and programs and work around the world, There was always a sense that actually by we'll do the sustainability things that make us more money, that will increase our returns, that will make us richer, one way or another. And now we're beginning to see the limits of that thinking. That's great. Where it happens, where there is a win-win, go for it. Like, let's celebrate it even. That's fine. But let's not pretend that that's sufficient for addressing the issues that we face. We need a whole host of actions that are held back by the desire to maximize returns and now we're beginning to realize I think you know I don't think anyone credible argues anymore that we're just going to get there with win-wins alone Mm. we're going to get there with just like let the market rip and actually it will reward those that are doing a lot of good anyway and greed will fix this the desire to make even more profit individually will fit like that five years ago that was a prominent position I don't think I'm not walking to sustainability conferences anymore where anyone is implying that, let alone saying it explicitly. So that gives me hope that there's a realisation happening, whether it's sort of creeping up on us and we're beginning to realise or there's a profound moment of um, discovery. But now the question becomes, right, there's a lot of money right now that is, you know, going around the world, trying to find investments that give it the best returns, can all of those trillions in investments figure out what's sufficient and then try to optimize and maximize social and ecological benefit? Is it possible for us to go, this is sufficient? At the moment, legally, there are huge hurdles for individuals and businesses and funds to do this, but legal stuff aside, we can, we make law, we can change the law, right? Like humans made this stuff up. You don't walk around a forest and see a publicly listed shareholder wealth maximising company. (laughs) Like we made this thing up not very quite recently actually, particularly in this current iteration. So we can make that up differently. But at a human level, which I think getting back to your original question, how can we have enough? And, you know, you you see these billionaires who are giving away a huge chunk of their money. They're doing it through control. Like, you know, they're doing it through their own foundations that they decide... You know, as benevolent um, uh, leaders, how to use and what matters to them, and what connects their personal ethics. That's great. We celebrate a lot of that stuff. Can we now move to the fact that clearly you didn't, you never needed ninety percent of your money? What if we designed Facebook the way Wikipedia was designed? And for those that don't know, Wikipedia essentially is designed as a steward ownership or a um, or a social enterprise business where. Any revenue it does make goes into just running the organization. No one's becoming a billionaire out of it. But imagine if we if we redesigned the social media giants of this world, or or most of the Nasdaq companies in the US, or you know, the FTSE in the UK or across Europe and Asia and Latin America and Africa companies to say, okay, well, let's get give a fair return to investors, but anything above the upside is not going to make the millionaires into billionaires. The upside is going into making this the most socially and ecologically beneficial business that it can possibly be. Mm. And all of this is about sufficiency and it's about being willing to give up some power mm. and say that, look, I'm not going to control this. I'm going to take my return based on what I've put in And the rest, I'm going to design mechanisms where others also get a say, the farmers and earth and workers and communities and unions and governments and, you know, all sorts of organizations that are impacted by these decisions. They get to also have a voice in this. So, yeah, the point of sufficiency, I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's liberating for people to go what they decide what they need and not then, you know, let go of anything beyond that the minute we can get that mindset into the way we design our systems, our financial markets, our business models, then we're talking, then we're in the game, and we're beginning to see just the small, you know, I guess, shoots, the small seedlings of, of this coming through. The Patagonia example just a couple of weeks ago is probably the most prominent in that world, but well, we're seeing in other places as well.
0: And it strikes me that the way in which we've designed these systems and the ruthlessness and competitiveness that... that- you know, we kicked off the conversation by approaching, um, that the systems that exist where profit accrues to a tiny percentage of people who are willing to make the kind of risks that most of us might just kind of balk at, there's a huge vested interest in not permitting these systems to be altered, challenged or changed. And so I wonder, in terms of the systemic change that we need, where do you think is the greatest potential for kind of enacting some of this stuff. So I'm thinking, for instance, operations where you have people come together and maybe there's 15 entrepreneurs and everyone can chip in, I don't know, 500 quid to support someone to set up a local business that's integrated in the local community. That makes sense to me as an alternative model because I I just don't see how the large systems that we've created and have become so entrenched are going to to possibly change (laughs) given there's such a vested interest for them to keep benefiting the people they serve.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I think, you know, somewhere in the late 20th century, um, before the 1998 Asian financial crisis, there was a decision to almost pile in together the concept of trade and financial liberalization. There's a reason why I'm going to tell this story. But there was a sense that let's just unleash financial capital. Let's get it. Let's make it as easy as possible for it to come in and out as liquid as possible Let's minimise the risk that it could get bogged down somewhere, and then it will flow to the countries and reward the activities that are most efficient. That was sort of, and I think in, in cobbling those two ideas together of saying let's liberalise trade and liberalise finance, there was a mistake made in that it we made things so easy and liquid for money to come in and out, finance to come in and out of of countries and and businesses and investments, that it dehumanized finance to an even greater degree. It meant that you would, you know, and and we've got these complicated chains of finance where no one knows where your money, where their money is. No one knows what it's supporting. No one, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would challenge anybody listening to this to go, could you actually name where that money might go into a fund that goes another fund that goes, if you've got a pension fund, if you're fortunate enough to have a pension fund, you wouldn't be able to trace it, you wouldn't be able to track it. we've We've just made everything about the digits, about the money. and and I think the same issue has happened in business. And you know when I worked at Procter and Gamble, Cincinnati, people working in Cincinnati would have no idea what is going on in the supply chain. Like how could they? You know, how would they know what's important to the communities that are impacted? by the production and the manufacturing, Mm. but further down into the raw materials manufacturing. They might have a report or a spreadsheet on it if they're lucky and particularly cared about it, but there's nothing that replaces the human connection. And I I think you're right, Natalie, in saying that we've got to build a financial market actually around that concept as well. If we dehumanize money completely, and it's just about the growth and return and growth of investment itself, then we lose a huge part of our ability to be cooperative, for it to be generous, to be kind and caring. And we need to bring that into finance. It's become a, a you know almost something to be looked down upon if you bring those values into into finance. But we can build financial markets around that, and a lot of that's going to happen if we have much more local interactions. Um, and it's not to say that localism will fix everything. But it, it helps with the human connections that, will, that do shape it. If you're going to church on a Sunday with your workers or the businesses that, who have invested in you, um, or you're going to mosque on a Friday and you're standing next to the individual, you're going to a community event where you're seeing the individuals who are impacted by your decisions, something kicks in as a human. You know something kicks in, it changes your behavior and, and and it differs from what the spreadsheets tell you to do and differs to what the venture capital meetings tell you to do it's and we need to re rewire that back in into our economy that that we're humans and and let us feel those responsibilities, not just like read them but feel them and look the individuals in the eye that are impacted by your investment or by your lack of investment or by your Employment practices, or the way you negotiated a particular contract, like let's let's throw humanity and those community, that community spirit back in. So I, I, I think that was al- almost where you were leaning, and it, it triggered in me that thought that we can't just liberate, liberalise finance to a point where we allow it to be completely dehumanised. It's that human connection happens at a community, human to human level, and and I think we can build systems out of that.
0: Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, trying to get that kind of human connection and contact back in, especially at a time where there is so much emphasis on the virtual, on lack of um, in-person contact. And I think, you know, that, that's one of the questions. How do you build back in, for instance, transparency or a chain of provenance? Some people suggest, you know, the blockchain could be put to that, to that use, but in a world which is becoming ever more rapidly digitised, um, you know, and people are sort of so excited about the prospect of AI and VR and the metaverse and, and forget that actually um, this all exists on like social substrates, so the relationships that we have with one another, financial agreements, but then also resource-based substrates. We can't make these things happen without actual physical mind materials, etc. So it's just so many different levels that I think we are disconnected from, and to your point about community and seeing the impacts of our behaviours, not just with one another, but with the living world, it's, I mean, if we can place that back in and get a bit of a reality check, I think a lot of us are in for a reckoning.
1: I think we'll be relieved, though, as well, when we can. (laughs) I I think, you know, in those very honest, vulnerable moments, we would probably, many of us, I hope many of us I might have a selection bias of certain groups of people that I get to know well, but I think many of us would would sort of talk about how empty some of this feels, yeah so, totally. some of the extreme monetization, the extreme competition, the status competition that has just gotten to levels on social media that is you know untenable um the the way that we don't feel connected like you know some of the roles and the special strategic advisory management something director, you know, like what do you actually do? <laughs> what are you making? What are you producing? How are you helping somebody? Um, so many roles now in these corporate machines that we've built um, that are desirable on the face of it, I think, feel quite empty. Um, you know, and I, I had a, a stint in a couple of different parts of the corporate world and and saw that, like just mm. saw the the emptiness, saw the... The vacuum that that creates. Um, and I think bringing in those human connections would, would help us with our mental health, would help us with our community resilience. It, it's not a silver bullet. I mean, mm. you know, people aren't lovely and perfect all of the time, but they're also not greedy and selfish all of the time either. And w- let's build a system that fosters the former, not the latter.
0: Mm. And so before we move to the closing questions, I am curious what encouragement you might give to people listening to this who are perhaps in that corporate machine or who have the, on the one hand, kind of like the opportunity to be working and making good money, but on the flip side might feel like there isn't much of an alternative. How might you support them if they're feeling that sense of vacuousness and wanting to change? How might you support them in... I don't know. Contemplating a different future for themselves or making that first step.
1: I mean, I, I don't think I've got any um, very simple answers to the to these questions, and I think everyone's mm. journey will be a little bit different. And and to expect a, a turbulent journey, <laughs> um, but the, a couple of things that I would underline is one: don't let go of these questions and doubts. Let though you know it's hard to sit with them. It's hard to sit with the discomfort of knowing things don't feel right, that this particular career path, these options don't feel sufficient, don't feel rewarding or purposeful. Um, Let that sit, let the discomfort of it sit because it will play a function. It It will play a role in looking out for other ideas and thoughts and it will motivate you when the time comes. The second is that we're not just employees. I mean, we're citizens, we're community members, we're consumers, we're investors, we're friends, we're fathers and mothers and you know sisters and brothers. you know we' we're, we're lots of things, you know, and we can do a lot and find a lot of meaning in other parts of our lives and and other roles that we play in everything from voting and political involvement to just being a, an engaged community member. We can build that economy and world outside of the corporate machines that we might feel trapped in sometimes. And the last thing I would say is that there are always going to be really good people. I mean, in all of these companies I have come across in some of the world's biggest consumer goods companies, companies that I've critiqued publicly, I've really come close to some individuals working there that I know are wanting to drive change. They want to be entrepreneurs, you know, sort of an entrepreneur but from within the organization. And find those, and talk to those, and and be, you know, clever in the way that that you 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 pursue that path. But you can do a lot of good in machines that are designed to prevent you from doing some of that good. Um, and you can drive some change. You can find meaningful ways to use a particular role. So not necessarily to to give up on on it and and to sort of feel feel like the whole thing is uh, is is futile, but to try to to use a position for good and. And I think to be honest, when all of those things I just listed come together, doors open that are unpredictable. If you're an engaged person, if you're if you if you sit with the authenticity of that discomfort, you're not defensive about it, but you sort of say, yeah, it doesn't feel right. I, I'm not sure that I buy this sustainability spin that's you know on my business card or on my or on the website of the company. If you sit with the discomfort of that, people People value that authenticity, I think, you know, like that you don't just become, doesn't mean you, you're you always a troublemaker and, and saying difficult things and moments that get you fired. But I think that authenticity comes through. Feeling like having other parts of your life that are doing a lot of that transformational work as well. And then having those conversations within a company to drive change where possible. Those things come together to, to open other doors, to, to do other kind of work at some point in your life. I have a, a great faith that, authenticity just gets rewarded if others sniff it out they they find it they support it and they want to work with people who are authentic who aren't just corporate spin machines or in some form of cognitive dissonance that you know isn't allowing them to to be honest about the the situation and the trade-offs and the challenges ahead Um, but doing it in a way that is i think appropriate for the individuals you're interacting with so all of that i think it comes together in some way and it will almost certainly be a door that you never thought it'll just it'll be something that you can't plan for
0: i love it and i also like the the plurality of who we are in different spaces of our lives and that really counting for something so a couple of things one is what are some of the tools or practices that you found valuable and two is how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days
1: Wow, very good questions. I mean, I, depending on the the challenge and the situation, I've I've used so many different tools or approaches or or just sort of philosophies, I guess mm-hmm. that I've usually just seen ex- seen other people exhibit and and thought, wow, I admire that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to take that on and 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 leverage it in one form or another. I mean, one of the things, and this is maybe very personal to me, Natalie, is that. I have difficulty sometimes when when there's a discomfort, when there's a real tension or a mm. discomfort in the moment, and you want to retreat from it, mm. you know. And and for me, it's been reminding myself to to sit with that discomfort and feel it and realize what's going on inside you in that moment. Like listen to your body, listen to your heart rate go up, listen to you know your your temperature rise, listen to you know feel yourself maybe get sweaty out of anxiety in the moment whatever that moment might be it might be in a boardroom it might be in a on a march it might be in an uncomfortable conversation with a colleague or, or another part of your life but listening to your body in those moments there's a you know th- th- there's a wisdom there it's anxious and it's uncomfortable and it's trying to deal with it but I think when you sit with it with with that level of understanding of what's going on and in yourself, it, it buys you some patience and understanding and empathy. That is always helpful. So that that's an approach that currently my current sort of development and where I am in life that that I think about a lot and I deploy deploy a lot. Um, what gives me hope in dark days? What gives me hope is the way people receive my hope. That I I don't you know. W- w- if if I can find a bit of energy to explain what what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I I always get energy back. You know, I always get some reinforcement, support, someone going a little bit of an extra mile, and it always reminds me. It and it doesn't. It's not everybody at every moment. Like you know, you've got to sort of realize not everyone. But on a given day, if the if I throw out some energy into the universe, I do a talk, I go to a place, I meet people, I talk to. You know, there'll be a handful of people out of a, a slightly larger number that will give me something back in terms of the positivity, reinforcement, support, solidarity that then energizes me. And that and that reminds me every single time that most people want a fairer world. Most people want a world that isn't destroying our natural ecosystem. and it's, And they just don't know how to move to change. current reality that I'm yet to meet anybody that says, yep, we should be an overshoot of planetary boundaries and shortfall on life's essentials. I'm I'm yet to meet anybody who thinks that that should happen. So implicitly, no matter whether, whether it's too difficult to admit or they don't know how to begin, one way or another, everybody wants to transform the economy. No one thinks this is the right way to go. And that gives me hope because I think once we tap that and together collectively, I mean it's not my job exclusively. It's all of our jobs to give out each other a sense of confidence that a, we must change and b we can and are already beginning to change um, that once that ball starts rolling, that nothing's going to stop it. we we're, we're going to transform things because we want to survive and we want to live thriving lives.
0: Mm. Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And so for people who want to find out more, obviously they can visit donuteconomics.org. Where else can they find you? What's the best place for people to go?
1: Well, I mean, donuteconomics.org is kind of the community, the platform they can join as individuals, um, change makers all around the world, uh, through that platform. There are we have open groups and networks that are pulling um the donut Economics into their place and trying to drive transformation, they can join one of those groups. Um, and on social media, of course, but DonutEconomics.org is where the, the community of people who are trying to put Donut Economics into action uh, are meeting. It's where they're sharing stories, creating tools, creating events. And it's happening. Thousands of people now around the world have have joined this growing community that's a part of a much bigger movement of new economy movements
0: thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure.
1: My pleasure, Natalie.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at High. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.